Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet podcast. Welcome to all regular and new visitors to my corner of the internet. I appreciate you tuning in to listen to my musings and pondering about my making life. If you've not stopped by here before, I'm Meg and I come to you from London in the UK. I'm a maker, writer and generally curious soul, probably in every sense of the word. I'm fascinated by natural materials and the long human instinct to manipulate material and make objects. Every six to eight weeks or so, I drop by to share some experiences, adventures and observations from my own making life. Of course, I talk about what I'm making, but in many ways, I'm more fascinated by the how and the why of our making, from material and environmental considerations of what and how we make to some of the psychological and social reasons and implications of why we make. If you want to keep up with what's going on between episodes, you can follow me on Instagram at Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with an underscore between each word. Show notes of everything I mention in this podcast are available on my blog, mrsmcuriositycabinet.com. I've also recently started making small videos to accompany the podcast. They are definitely just an adjunct to the audio podcast, as the practical and mental meanderings through my making life are definitely addressed in detail here. But they are a fun additional way to offer a visual insight into some of the making that's happening in the Curiosity Cabinet. Thank you to everybody who commented on the last episode and shared what they were up to. Also, I've received some virtual coffees in recent months, so thank you to everybody who showed their appreciation. These small financial contributions really helped with things like hosting fees and miscellaneous IT costs. So that's the introductions and administrative announcements done. How are you all keeping? Ready to hunker down or eager to catch every ray of sun you can? Or a bit of both? And if you're in the southern hemisphere, can you feel the sap rising as life springs back after the winter dormancy? As the big preserving push of late summer and early autumn has passed, there has been a bit more spare time and energy, which I've mostly been spending out and about. There have been a couple of workshops and short courses. There have also been lots of walks along the canal towpath and other scrappy parts of London's unofficial countryside to top up the vitamin D and generally calm my mind. And I've taken in a fair few exhibitions, all with a strong material feel. In fact, I think I have discovered the reason for pockets. I'm one of the few sewers who is not massively fussed about adding pockets to everything, but during my recent trips to exhibitions on Noguchi, Theaster Gates and Lenore Tawny, I found myself stuffing my hands deeper into my pockets, as my fingers were itching to explore the texture of the sculptures, clay, pots and woven hangings. So what do I have in store today? Well, making-wise, not everything went to plan. There is an unexpected project, or rather one that we had to bring forward unexpectedly, There's also a new knit that has risen from the frogged yarn of a half-knit cardigan and a bit of sewing improvisation to fill an urgent gap in the wardrobe. So I hope you have a cup of something pleasing to hand and a project of your own, and let's begin. In September, as I was harvesting potatoes from the pots on Tatty Alley, i.e. the path leading up to the bulk of our patio garden, I heard some of the decking planks crack and felt them give way. My heart sunk a little, but as the damage was to the edge of the path, I just notched it up as a job to tackle next spring. 
Then, at the start of October, as I was clearing space in the pit, i.e. the decking just outside our back door, in order to erect a tiny new shed, I put my foot through the decking, first in one place and then in another as I attempted to stabilise myself. With two glaring holes between the back door and Tatty Alley, the realisation hit. This was no longer a job to postpone till spring. We needed to sort out these areas before the November rains arrived and the slippy, precarious decking became worse. Laying decking is hardly the most riveting making project to talk about, but I'll do so nevertheless. Why? Well, it's still making and involves handling materials. Secondly, most of humankind's making efforts revolve around the practical and mundane rather than the pretty photogenic stuff. And finally, this kind of making project offers just as many insights into materials, processes and ourselves as sewing or knitting a garment might. So, back in early autumn when the path started to crack, my first thoughts were, can we patch it? From a time and environmental perspective, patching things up to eke out their life often makes most sense. But as I was clearing the crumbled wood to measure the width and depth of the planks, it became obvious to me that both the planks and the joists were brittle and sponge-like from the years of rain. More wood disintegrated as I investigated the damage, so it would have to be a complete replacement job. My second thought was, if we're going to go to the trouble to replace the pit and path, why not go for something more durable, particularly given that our garden faces north and the sun never reaches the lower ground level pit? Technically, it would be possible to remove the concrete and tile this area, but given the highly restrictive covenants on the building, we would need at least six lots of approval before the jackhammer could even lift the existing concrete. So we resigned ourselves to replacing it almost like for like. It would have to be pressure-treated wooden decking planks, but we'd go for thicker, wider ones for greater longevity. That was easier said than done. Just as in the wool processing industry, timber mills around the world closed or slowed production in 2020 due to the pandemic, resulting in shortages in material that are only just being felt. Add to that delays in shipping after a blockage in the Suez Canal earlier this year and bottlenecks at British ports in the wake of Brexit and there are definitely supply chain gaps in even very humble materials. Not being able to source exactly what we were looking for when we wanted it in this context was of course an inconvenience, but more importantly a salutary reminder of how much worse things can get if rising levels of carbon and methane emissions and environmental degradation are not seriously addressed very soon. By hunting around and finding smaller local suppliers, I was ultimately able to put together a patchwork of orders to source the necessary timber, jigsaw blades, screws and replacement drill bits. Sourcing the material was only the first part of the challenge though. As our garden is pretty tiny, we knew we would have to tackle this project in shifts. We moved bicycles, pots and tools to what little free space we have in the actual garden and then had to operate a crop rotation style system, organising timber into a tiny area of the pit while we lifted one section of rotten timber and relayed it, only to have to move the timber and working tools elsewhere to move on to the next section. As we needed to maximise joist strength and timber efficiency, I needed to give a bit of thought beforehand to the sequencing of the works. And of course, although our supply of fresh timber dwindled as we progressed, the pile of rotten timber grew and took over precious space. 
Disposing of the old rotten timber actually proved to be one of the biggest challenges of the project, and although massively inconvenient, probably rightly so. As in most places in the UK, municipal waste disposal involves a schedule of things that can and can't go out for different types of curbside collection. And every time you think you've understood the minutiae of the council waste, there's an unexpected twist. If Mr M and I were drivers, we could have hired a car to drive the rotten wood to the municipal waste facility. But as non-drivers, we had to call the council to arrange and pay for a bulk item or builder's waste collection. After a long telephone queue, we were told we could only book a collection of up to 10 bags of waste rubble, weighing no more than 20 kilos each, at any one time. With nearly 30 bags of rotten timber by the time we finished the job, that means we've been living with the debris of this project for some time. As both an environmentalist and someone who has professionally worked on waste-related infrastructure projects, I actually believe disposing of waste should be difficult to make us collectively think twice about waste creation. That said, the reality of having to move or dodge rotten planks every time I want to get to the bicycle or take the compost out is a pain in the proverbial, and one of the reasons why I would definitely have gone with a patch and repair job if it had been possible. Aside from sourcing and disposing of materials, what else did I take away from this seriously unsexy making project? Well, just as with sewing a garment, the preparatory work of clearing space, organising materials and tools, measuring and cutting accounted for about 90% of the work. The actual drilling and screwing wood together was only a tiny part of the job. What is more, in many ways sewing a garment is easier. You start with a pattern that specifies fabric requirements, a layout plan to fit all pattern pieces onto the fabric, and instructions that specify what order to assemble it in. By contrast, redecking the pit and path involved calculating how much wood we needed, so that involved some mental piecing together to ensure we could cover the space based on the available plank length and width with as little wastage as possible. Then, in light of the space constraints in our garden, I had to come up with a sequence of works that would involve minimal moving of materials and garden implements to make the best use of the limited rain-free windows we had. Both exercises are, of course, totally doable. Humans have been doing this kind of thing for centuries, after all. Ultimately, they just involve some measuring, calculations, thinking through the process and planning ahead. But it did take time, lots of double-checking and also a degree of risk. Having spent much of my younger years helping Dad with DIY, I had some experience to call upon, but there were definitely moments where I was worried about whether I had built in enough of a buffer in terms of joists and planks, or where I had to re-engineer the sequence given the location of drain holes and covers. The other big takeaway from this making project was a reminder that modern technology is a mixed blessing. Yes, using an electric saw, drill and screwdriver saved a lot of time and spared us many blisters, but these tools were not without their own issues. Although Mr M and I tackled this job together, I did the bulk of the sawing and drilling as my impaired eyesight is fractionally better than Mr M's. And although I'm a pretty gritty kind of woman, there's no denying that power tools are designed and sized for what the DIY tool sector views to be their average customer – Male, larger hands and more muscle mass. Don't get me wrong, I have absolutely no desire to see pink or aqua coloured power tools aimed at women or any of that kind of infantilising nonsense. 
but the handle of Dad's 40-year-old drill, our 10-year-old jigsaw and a recent electric screwdriver were all sized for Mr M's grip, and my hand was having to strain to control them. If I were just tackling a small job, I would probably not have noticed this, but after two dozen saw lines or the hundredth drill hole, that strain on my hand was exhausting and painful. And then there's a physical impact of how the tool judders the body. I don't think bodies have evolved to absorb such sustained high-powered vibration anyway, but given that I'm a middle-aged woman with less muscle mass than the average user these tools were designed for, I suspect I felt the impact of these tools more than a bloke might. So much so that at times we actually dispensed with the electric saw and resorted to an old-fashioned tenon saw, so we could share the job and give our bodies a bit of reprieve. Although this added some time to the project, it wasn't actually that much because we quickly found a rhythm that involved using power technology and old school tools in tandem. And we certainly needed fewer tea breaks to recover from the hand cramps and physical jangling of our systems. This redecking project is hardly the sexiest making project in the world, I'll freely admit that, but it has been strangely satisfying. It definitely feels good to be able to tidy and organise the logistical end of the garden ready for next growing season. More than that though, it's quite gratifying to plan and work through a project from scratch. And for all my moaning about the frustration of drills and saws, this exterior job, where finish and precision are not quite as critical, was a good way for me to reacquaint myself with sawing and drilling before tackling some forthcoming creative projects that will involve basic but more precise woodworking skills. Last month I was working my way through a self-designed cardigan at a comfortable pace. It will be a simple set-in-sleeve cardigan, pairing a wool I was exceptionally taken with, i.e. Baram U's Pip Natural, with a pleasing diamond lace pattern. I had swatched, of course, and crunched the numbers on the basis of the tension I liked, and then cast on. Initially I was concerned that my calculations might have been a fraction off, and it might be a little tighter than I wanted, or rather it might not have quite as much ease as I'd hoped for. However, by the time I'd split for the back and fronts and knit halfway up the back, I realised the opposite was true. The garment would be far too large, with a good two and a half inches overlap at the front. That's quite a significant discrepancy, so what had happened? Even though I was checking my tension as I went, there can be a difference in tension between large expanses of fabric on one long circular needle and three medium-sized pieces on three individual needles, where each piece has scope to relax fully into the boundaries of their individual selves. Also, as we all know, swatches can lie. When I spot-checked my tension by laying the lower body flat, it hadn't actually changed. But when I wrapped the garment pieces around me, the large expanse of fabric definitely stretched under its own weight. There was nothing for it then. I ripped the whole thing out and re-caked the wool for reuse. I like this wool and the grey-brown shade far too much to waste it on a poorly sized garment I'll never wear. Particularly as this wool is no longer available because Baramu has ceased trading. I know that some knitters pop froggy arm back in their wool pantry as they can't face it immediately after the lost hours of work. I'm probably a bit odd as I prefer to cast it back on in another guise as soon as possible. After all, there was a reason I reached for it in the first place. To make a four-ply muted dark brown cardigan, a garment I surprisingly don't have and have felt was missing from my earth tone wardrobe. 
As winter was rapidly approaching, I decided to play it safe with my recast on. I would once again pick a simple shape, but this time I'd work from a pattern, or rather use a pattern as a starting point. In particular, I reached for Kate Davis' Yorlin cardigan pattern and started swatching and stocking stitch to work out the sizing. I also reached for my stitch dictionaries to find a suitable lace pattern to substitute. The Yorlin cardigan is a simple four-ply raglan cardigan with a top-down construction, which is by far my preferred way of knitting garments. The simplicity of this garment is lifted by lace panels about 5cm or 2 inches wide that run down the front at either side of the button band. The lace design involves a repeat of a highly stylized representation of a bird's face. That wasn't really my cup of tea, but as the architecture and construction of the cardigan ticked all the right boxes for me, I decided it was still a useful pattern as a starting point that would serve me well for future cardids. I thought I would talk a bit about how I went about turning this pattern into a cardigan that appealed to me. Not because I have any aspirations to being a knitwear designer, rather because I know that like me, many knitters struggle to trawl through the pattern archive on Ravelry since the website's redesign. So being able to approach patterns we do have access to as a blueprint is quite a handy skill. The first part of the process is swatching for the main body, which in this case is in stocking stitch, to work out the number of stitches and rows to each four inches and what tension achieves a fabric we like the feel of. I know it's possible to go up or down needle sizes to get close to the recommended tension, but for me the feel of the fabric, both when knitting and after blocking, is key. After all, there is no point getting a spot on tension if knitting or wearing the fabric feels like a penance. My swatch came in at 26 stitches by 36 rows, compared to the pattern which is written for a tension of 28 by 36. Often the key focus of swatching is the stitches rather than the rows. This is on the basis that a garment needs to fit around critical circumferences, such as bust, waist, hips, biceps and so forth, and that it's generally easier to lengthen or shorten a garment by knitting more or fewer rows on the body or the arms. In the context of a raglan design, and a yoke for that matter, row tension does matter though because of the depth of the shoulder to armpit. I was relieved that my row tension corresponded to the pattern one as it meant I could keep the rate of increases as written. If my row tension had been tighter, which often happens with me, I would have needed more rows which would have meant increasing at a slower rate, for example every three rows instead of every two, or even a mix of every two and three. As my stitch tension was different to the one in the pattern, I needed to do some calculations to work out which pattern size to knit, or indeed, if I would need to rework the numbers entirely. I know that some knitters can get very nervous about arithmetic, so I thought it might be helpful if I set out step by step how I approach this. This is by no means the only way of doing it, and I certainly don't want to teach anybody to suck eggs, but it's one of those things that knitters refer to but rarely talk about the nitty gritty of it. I would add that when I'm working out measurements and modifications in knitting, I work in inches because I think the divisions and multiples are just easier in inches. When I'm doing the same in sewing, I work in metric as it's much easier to work with fractions of 10 with the tiny measurements needed for multi-panelled garments. So, 
First, I take the stitch number from my swatch and divide it by four, as the swatch is measured over four by four inches, which is pretty much 10 by 10 centimeters. This gives me the number of stitches per inch. Next, I multiply that result by the number of inches of my key measurement, usually the bus, plus my preferred ease of about one to one and a half inches to give me the ideal number of stitches I would need at that critical point. In this case, I use the full bust, but for heavily laced garments, I tend to use a high bust rather than the full bust measurement. So measured just under the armpits on the basis that all overlays will have a lot more ease. I then compare the number I calculated with the corresponding bust stitch number in the pattern. If it's a bottom up garment with no shaping between hips and splitting for the arms, it will be the number of stitches you cast on, or possibly the number just after any waistband ribbing. If it's a top down garment, I look for the number that will be left on the needles after splitting for the sleeves and casting on any underarm stitches. I generally look at the bust stitch number for the two sizes either side of the number I calculated. I divide each of those numbers between my stitch gauge number. This tells me what the garment size would be if I worked with either set of the numbers in the pattern. Sometimes one of those numbers will actually work for me. It will give me a smidge more or less ease than the pattern recommends, which I may actually prefer. On other occasions, it may produce a garment that is fractionally too tight on the one hand or have far too much positive ease for me on the other. In the context of a heavy all over pattern, be it lace, cables or stranded colour work, we often have to settle for picking the nearest size and wearing it with a different amount of ease. But in the case of a design that doesn't involve complex all over patterns, there's scope to tweak the pattern numbers to really make the fit our own. In the context of the Yorling cardigan, I decided to use the size nearest my bust size as a starting point, but to make a few more modifications as the number of pattern stitches, even with the smaller size, would still give me a smidge too much ease based on my tension for my liking. As I prefer one and a half inches or about four centimeters of ease rather than say three or four, I needed to find a way to lose about an inch. The first number I calculated, i.e. 26 stitches divided by 4 inches, gives me 6.5 stitches to an inch. As like a lot of full busted women, my back is relatively smaller than my front, I decided to take the numbers for size 6 as a starting point, but knock 4 stitches off the back and 1 stitch off each side of the front. As most of the cardigan is knit in stocking stitch, this modification doesn't throw out the pattern and isn't discernible but produces a better fit for me. It is of course possible, based on the numbers of our swatch and our own dimensions, to calculate the number of stitches and rows from scratch. And there are cases where doing that definitely makes sense, not least of all if you're planning to sell patterns. Then I would calculate the numbers from scratch for precision, to make sure the repeats work, and also to avoid plagiarism. But as somebody who knits for herself or for private gifts, I find that from a time, effort and risk perspective, it makes a lot more sense to treat a pattern as a blueprint from which to extrapolate the numbers I need for my measurements. Much as I would treat a tried and tested top or dress sewing pattern as a block from which to draft the other garments that have the same basic architecture. Having worked out the basic numbers for the dimensions of the pattern, I then turned my attention to the lace panel. I have a couple of stitch dictionaries which I browsed for lace patterns with a similar stitch and row count per repeat to that in the pattern. As this pattern is knit 
top down. When leafing through my books, I simply turned them upside down as I wanted a pattern that would work in that direction. I found two that might fit the bill with very similar counts. One was a highly geometrical intertwining lace diamond pattern. The other was a more organic leaf pattern that came in two forms. The stylized geometry would have produced a look closer to that in the original panel, but there was a complication. As I would be using the panel on either side of the button band, I would have to create a mirror image of the intertwining open lace. This is of course totally doable, but at the time my brain was quite foggy due to everything else going on in life. So swatching to work out how to swap up, knit two togethers and SSKs was slightly beyond me at that point. So I filed this design away as one to possibly use in future and looked at the leaf patterns in more detail. I could have made my life really easy and used the beech leaf pattern which involves two leaves directly opposite each other on a stem. In that case I wouldn't have had to worry about creating a mirror image and I would probably have learnt the pattern repeat a lot faster. However, I much preferred the drooping elm pattern, which I would be turning upwards of course, where the leaves are positioned alternately along the stem, as it produced a lighter feel. So I examined the 10 row repeat in detail to work out on which row I would need to start the mirror image so that the leaves on each side of the button band were both on the same level and pointing in the opposite direction. This meant I needed to start the pattern repeat on row 5 for the left hand front and row 1 for the right one. The combination of staggered leaves and staggering the repeat meant I never completely learned the pattern repeat, but this minor inconvenience was definitely worth it for a lighter, more elegant feel. A final thing to think about was how to set the lace apart from the stocking stitch. In the original Yorlin pattern, the designer used a band of three reverse stocking stitches to delineate the lace panel from the rest of the front side, much as you might in the context of cables. I tried this but didn't feel it worked for this lace pattern. Those stitches just looked clunky and out of place. Maybe it would be better if there was only one reverse stocking stitch, so I dropped down several rows and tried that, but it still just looked odd. Looking at the lace pattern in the stitch dictionary though, I decided I liked the lattice-like line that distinguished the beech leaves and the drooping elm leaves, which had been knit in one swatch. So I replaced the three reverse stocking stitches on either side of the panel with an SSK yarn over knit one on one side of the panel and a knit one yarn over knit two together on the other side, which did the job perfectly. I've almost finished the body of the cardigan. I've just one more lace repeat to go and then I'm on to the rib. And so far I'm really pleased with the decisions I've made. There was a worrying moment about halfway down the body when I panicked that I wouldn't have enough wool. After measuring and weighing my whip and the leftover wool, I decided I might have just about enough, but it was very marginal. As I said, Baram U is no longer trading, so I had a rather frantic hunt around for anywhere that still had the pip natural walls in stock in the colour I needed. Fortunately, I found an online seller and snaffled up their last three balls, so I should have plenty and a bit of a buffer. The next phase will be the sleeves, which are pretty straightforward, and then there will be a few decisions about the neckline and button bands, but I'm well on the way to having a muted dark brown four-ply cardigan for this winter. Moreover, I'm getting a really good feel for the Yorlin as a blueprint for raglan cardigans in lighter weight yarns, 
be that four ply or something like a lace or vintage three ply weight. And I'm definitely going to add this pattern to my library of useful blocks. These kinds of calculations, pattern research and trial and error swatching may sound like a bore and a lot of effort, but I think there are a couple of really useful takeaways from the process. Takeaways that both build my skills as a knitter, but also make me think about how I value my own time and skills, as well as those of designers. Working out modifications to a pattern from adjusting numbers for fit to changing a design motif for taste is a really useful way to get to grips with what makes up the engineering of a pattern as opposed to the aesthetics. The more we get a feel for each of those components and the interplay between the two, the more we are able to treat patterns as building blocks that we can manipulate almost endlessly to maximise their usefulness. For example, by reworking them with different design motifs or in different yarn weights. It also allows us to mix and match elements from our existing library of patterns to maximise those resources. Of course, this doesn't mean that we are immune to new pattern releases or supporting designers, but it's likely to make it clearer to us what we are purchasing and why. It allows us to assess what a pattern actually offers so we can work out whether we consider it worth the investment. For example, does a particular pattern offer a novel shape or a new to us technique? Or are we looking for instructions for a good basic shape that works for our body and that we can reuse and adapt time and time again? Or maybe we really like the design in a yoke pattern or a triangular lace shawl, fully recognising that it may be a variation on a theme, but one that particularly appeals to our aesthetics, so we are very happy to purchase the pattern. Regardless of what the particular mix is that appeals to us, when we use a pattern as a starting point for our sartorial ideas, fit decisions and design choices, we also gain some insight into the time, research, energy and calculations that go into designing patterns. In this age of bargains and endless downward pressure on prices, doing even a fraction of those calculations and experimenting ourselves gives us a different level of appreciation for the value of a designer's skill and work. Not just in terms of their ability to produce something that chimes with our practical wants or aesthetic preferences, but also in terms of how much time, effort and risk a well-designed and drafted pattern can save us, and therefore how much we value both the designers and our own time and energy. Having experienced nervousness about material quantities and sequencing on the decking project, my failed off-tension knit and the modest panic about yardage in my reworked yawning cardigan, I'm very aware of how using a pattern, even if it's just as a starting point, helps reduce risk. When looked at in these terms, I reckon £6 or so for a set of instructions in multiple sizes with suggested specifications of materials and tools for the engineering, architectural and stylistic elements of a garment strikes me as pretty good value for money and a complete bargain if it's one we will use again and again. I've been plodding my way through a slow sewing project, my first winter coat, but I had to set that aside for a quick simple sew to fill an unexpected gap. After multiple repairs, the fabric of my paisley nightdress perished at all the yoke seams. As I had precisely two nighties, I needed to rustle up a replacement pretty quickly. Between the urgency of the make and my general preference to use existing supplies rather than buy new ones, I decided to make one out of some leftover cotton jersey. 
I had about 1.2 metres or 4 foot of singled cotton jersey left from a t-shirt sewing blitz a few years ago. Not enough to make a long sleeve top, but long enough for a sleeveless nighty. Next was a decision about the pattern. As twilling and fitting takes time, not to mention ordering printed patterns or gluing home printed ones together, my general approach to sewing patterns is to get the fit right on a handful of them and then really make them work for their money by making multiple versions or even using them as a block for other pieces. This means that when it comes to making things like nightwear, camisoles and slips, I generally start with a tired and tested dress top or skirt pattern and build in more or less ease. So I pulled out my patterns to see if I had anything that fit the bill and defaulted to one of the first t-shirt dress patterns I ever sewed, which is probably still my preferred t-shirt pattern, Tilly and the Buttons Cocoa Top and Dress. This pattern is designed for low stretch single jersey or interlock, has a shallow boat or funnel neckline and a cut that accommodates sizeable hips. And I could just about squeeze a sleeveless version of the dress onto 1.2 metres of fabric. I pulled out the front and back body pieces, laid them onto the fabric and then added one and a half centimetres or five eighths of an inch to the side seams. This gives me an extra six centimetres or two and a half inches of ease to allow for nighttime fidgeting and comfortable tossing and turning. I didn't redraw the curve of the arm side to make a proper sleeveless dress as it's just a casual nighty and my focus was on a quick replacement. Construction-wise, there is nothing difficult about this dress. It can be sewn on a sewing machine with a straight stitch on the vertical seams and a zigzag stitch on the horizontals and curves. The pattern does suggest using tape or ribbon to stabilise the back shoulder seams, which adds to the finish and durability of the pattern, so I incorporated that minor finesse. Based on my experience of the Coco t-shirts, as much as I like the neckline, I've never been thrilled with the finish of the boat neck seam. The pattern just recommends stay stitching the neckline and then turning the seam under and zigzagging it into place. I find that with time the seam can however flip up and flash the raw edge. I know it's possible to buy chain stitched reinforced interfacing tape which provides more stability but thanks to the chain stitching still allows the fabric to give a little. However, I don't have any in stock and I couldn't track down any so I came up with a different solution. Hand stitching the next seam with an embroidery stitch. I'm just popping in with my editor's hat on because when re-listening to this fragment I realised I was talking about the next seam when actually I mean the neck hem. This decision was actually inspired by some of the garments that Sarah of the Fibre Trek podcast makes. I don't do much embroidery despite having had many years of it at school, but I remembered seeing Sarah finish the arm and neckline bindings on jersey tunics with embroidery. So I rifled through the random mental filing cabinet that is my memory and tested out some of the stitches I recalled from all those years ago. My first thought was to use the chain stitch. After all, this is used on the specialised stabilising tape. Although the stitch looks attractive on the front of the fabric, it's not a wide stitch and on the back it's just like a line of back stitches. I was therefore worried that in time the neckline would just flip up, as with machine zigzagging. My next thought was to use the herringbone stitch, which produces a row of offset open cross stitches. 
This is my go-to stitch for sewing invisible hems. As a stitch is created by sewing tiny stitches against the direction of travel in two parallel but alternating lines, it allows for a degree of movement and is excellent on curves. However, although it's a lot wider than the chain stitch, which would help anchor the hem down around the neckline, from the front it would just look like two parallel staggered rows of running stitch, so not overly attractive. What I needed was a stitch that is wide enough on the back to lock the neck edging down, or allows for a degree of movement along the curve and would look attractive on the front. Maybe the first two were like a warm-up as the fingers recalled long ago learnt moves because soon I found my hands practising feather stitches. The best way to describe a perfectly precise line of feather stitches is as a column of staggered V's where each subsequent V starts at the base of the previous one. Soon though I ditched the neat precision I had learnt at school for more organic ones as I was practising how to create a gentle curve so I could follow the neckline. The result was more erratic but also more pleasing, almost like hints of buds on branches at the tail end of winter. And the effect on the back is two lines of offset angled stitches which have the desired effect. They were wide enough to ensure the hem was anchored down both immediately next to the neckline but also further in. So I pulled out some embroidery cotton in a contrasting shade of brown and started working on the neckline. As this stitch worked better than expected, I decided to use it on the armholes too. As much as I enjoy hand sewing for finishing my garments, I'm not generally given to embroidery on clothes. What I enjoyed about using feather stitching in this context though, was that in essence it was a functional choice that just happened to look attractive as well. The combination of modern tools and old school techniques, i.e. machine sewn seams and embroidery edged hemming, felt to me like the most sensible and suitable approach given the materials I had and issues I was trying to address, just as using a mix of old and new technology had been when working on the decking. And of course, making informed choices about mixes of old and new techniques and tools is not the preserve of domestic personal projects. In the context of environmental challenges in particular, this ability to mix old and new techniques will be essential. Vested interests would have us believe that we need ever more technology, new power generation methods, complex carbon capture and storage systems, crop modification processes, etc, etc, etc. Perhaps what we should actually be doing though is rifling through our collective memory bank of old school technologies and coming up with new configurations of traditional and modern approaches to the challenges our planet and societies are facing. To finish up, I'd like to share an inspiring gem with you. Ruth Singer, a textile artist I've been following for years, recently launched an audio podcast called Making Meaning, in which she has conversations with other artists exploring the meaning behind what they make. This podcast was born out of her experiences during lockdown, when the events where she would have conversations with fellow artists fell away. Not only was she losing opportunities to show her work and talk about it, she was also not having the many off-the-cuff conversations with other creative folk that might plant a seed, prompt her to develop a nascent train of thought, or even send half-conceived ideas off into new exciting directions and collaborations. 
As someone whose visually creative education ended at 12 and who has come to a creative practice much later in life, I have found it fascinating to listen to artists talk about their creative process. Not just about the habits and practices that help them, but mostly about how their hinterland of experiences, locations, personal histories and everyday encounters can spark trains of thought and ideas that ultimately meld with hands-on experience of materials and technique to create work with meaning. Ruth's podcast has therefore been both incredibly inspiring to me but also oddly reassuring. It's reassuring me that the time I'm spending mulling over ostensibly random strands of experiences and interests are not wasted but are indirectly informing what and how I'm making. If this sounds like the kind of thing you might enjoy, I would encourage you to check out the Making Meaning podcast, available at ruthsinger.com or on many podcast catchers. And if you like what you hear, I know Ruth is running a crowdfunder for the second series, the details of which are on her website too. As someone who makes a podcast myself, I know how time-consuming the process is, and I've been incredibly grateful for all the support I've received, whether via recommendations or virtual coffees. So I'm very happy to show similar appreciation to Ruth for her inspiring work. Well, I've witted on long enough for one episode. As always, I really enjoy hearing about what you're working on and your observations about materials and processes. Do please let me know how you go about using patterns as blueprints for your own ideas or what mixes of old and new tools and technologies you use, be it in your creative practice or the more mundane aspects of everyday life. So till the next time, I hope you enjoy many hours of making, whatever your medium may be.